We have our Bible reading now from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, and that's on page 14 of the Black Bibles in the pews. Page 14, Genesis, chapter 22. We're going to be reading the first 19 verses. And uh, to remind you, we're moving through Genesis, uh, and there's so much in there. What we've been doing is looking at characters, um, or the, the men uh, who take up the pages of these. So last week, we looked at Abraham. This week, we are looking at Isaac. So let me pray for us, and then we'll hear from God's Word. Lord and Father, we thank you for your Word We thank you that you speak to us and you have revealed yourself to us throughout history and most clearly in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we ask tonight that as we hear your word and we uh, hear teaching from Des, Lord, that we might be humbled, uh, that we might put ourselves under your word and let it shape and change us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, 
All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thanks very much. If you could uh, keep your Bibles open to that passage, that would be great. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Des. I'm one of the student ministers here. It's, uh, it's really lovely to see you here tonight as we kind of carry on, as Craig said, with our series in the last half of Genesis, uh, of Genesis, uh, Genesis 12 to 50. Uh, I say it's the last half, even though, you know, obviously that's much more than half the chapters, uh, simply because this really does seem to be where a big divide starts, where we come, all the things pre a guy called Abraham, and then after that, post-Abraham. We looked at Abraham last week, and this week we're looking at his son, Isaac. I uh, happen to love um, bumper stickers, really. I'm always on the lookout for bumper stickers. Um, and one that I was really uh, kind of... It's a, sort of a kind of a tough guy one, and in some ways I kind of roll my eyes when I see it. But uh, I kind of laughed at the time. It just said, simply said this. Is there life after death? Touch this car and find out. Now, it's not exactly a profound kind of answer to the question, but it is a profound question. We, human beings, seem to be obsessed with this question of what exactly will happen to us after we die. And various people, to various degrees of loopiness, have come up with various suggestions for what exactly does happen to us after we die. I don't know if you've ever heard, and I'm starting here with the very loopiest, uh, a a group, really a cult, uh, started in France in the 1970s by a French race car driver called the Raelians. If you've ever heard of the Raelians, you would know that they believe that human beings, rather than being created by God, were in fact cloned aliens. Uh, They don't in fact believe in a God, because of course that's irrational. Uh, uh, However, they seek immortality by human beings being cloned, and being cloned, and being cloned, and being cloned, so that we can just keep on going. Now, probably very few of us are kind of jumping up and down with excitement about this new discovery that the Raelians have made. It does seem slightly implausible. But you might also have seen other things that are maybe less loopy. You might have seen a few years ago, there was a show on TV called Crossing Over, where a psychic would, hold, would host a program and he would uh, say that he could contact members of the audience's families who had passed over into the dead. That he could get in touch with dead people and see how they were doing. And he did, you know, at least that's what he said he did. He kind of asked people what was happening and he said, I can feel answers. And invariably they were doing fine. Uh, It would have been a really bad thing for the show if all of a sudden someone had piped up and he said, yeah, actually, okay, well, what I'm hearing, okay, it's really hot in here. Uh, I'm in a cave. There's lava everywhere. There's a guy with a goatee, uh, kind of piano accordions. Um, You just wouldn't hear it. Flatliners. The movie. We've all seen it, about the medical students who attempt to find out if there really is life after death. But even if we're not a Raelian, even if we're not going to pack ourselves off to a show about crossing over and contacting the dead, even if we're not really that interested in flatliners, we still are fascinated and in some ways desperate to have life be more than just here and now. We express it in our culture in living on in people's memories, We strive to leave great legacies so that even when we are gone, people will remember us. Some people achieve it in spectacular fashion. 
you might have seen or even been to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's an enormous church, an architectural marvel. And its architect, Christopher Wren, is buried there. On his tombstone says these simple words, If you seek a monument, gaze around. It's quite a legacy. Now, not all of us have been able to build St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Most of us try for less spectacular things, but the principle is still the same. We want to leave behind something, a business, an achievement, a family. And I think the reason is this. We desperately want to live after death because life before death seems so short. There's just so much to do and we want to carry on. We want to live life after death because life before death seems just so short. But we find ourselves caught in this bind that while, we, while we're still in this world, we don't know what it will be like after death and so we become anxious. And not only do we become anxious about the life to come, the fact that we don't know what's going to happen makes us anxious about life now. We feel that we've got to constantly seize the day, that every experience could be our last and we must seize it and seize it and seize it and take hold of it. And adding, and we have to be honest here, adding the idea of a God out there doesn't necessarily help either. Because if that God doesn't ever demonstrate to us what he has planned for us after death, then we can't really trust him with our lives in the future. And if we can't trust our lives in the future, how can we trust our lives with a God here and now? How can we hand our lives over to him to deal with in the way that we would want? No, life is just too short to take that risk. We can't hand the reins over. And it is something which I think both non-believers in Jesus, but also believers feel. The simple question that I think we all ask ourselves from time to time is simply this. Can God be trusted with my life? Can God be trusted to take care of me? Tonight's passage, this week, focusing on Isaac, I think speaks to that question in powerful and profound ways. So before we really get into it, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you haven't left us in the dark about what life is about, both here and now and then after death. We pray that as we uh, look at your witness to the life of your child Isaac, that we might heed it and learn from it, be comforted and spurred on by it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're a point taker, there are really three points tonight uh, that we'll be going through. The first is simply entitled, Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking. As you will have already found out, one of the things that we're seeing as we, as we kind of look through here, it's one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, but it's also one of the most shocking. Let me read to you that beginning again. Let me read to you the first two verses. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. You see, it's shocking for at least two reasons, isn't it? It's shocking because of what Abraham is asked to do. He's asked to kill someone. 
But he's not just asked to kill someone, he's asked to kill a child. And he's not just asked to kill a child, he's asked to kill his son. And you look at the way it's expressed to you, he's not just asked to kill his son, he's asked to kill his only son. Now, of course, in the context of Genesis, we know that this isn't technically true. Of course, Abraham does have another son. Uh, Isaac has an older half-brother, Ishmael. But he doesn't have him anymore. Abraham, not one chapter ago, took that son, who he bore with his slave girl, Hagar, because Sarah, his wife, was so jealous about it, ordered him to send that son away. Chapter 21, verse 19, says it so brutally. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Yeah, of course he's got another son. But early one morning, he sent him away. And moreover, he's not just asking him to sacrifice one son, his only son. This is the son that God promised him. Let me read to you verse 12 of 21. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. God has promised to Abraham a great crowd of descendants, all of them to come through Isaac. But now it's Isaac that God is asking him to kill. But it gets even worse than that. Because he's not just asking him to kill his only son through whom all his descendants will come. You see, for Abraham to kill his only son is really to kill himself. You see, for Abraham, at this stage in the way God has been dealing with people, God hasn't yet told Abraham that there is life after death. The closest Abraham knows about life after death is a legacy of a family. As far as he knows, the last word of it is Genesis 3.9. From dust you came and unto dust you'll return. You see, for Abraham, the nearest thing to immortality is having a family that will survive him. You see, God's not just asking him to commit infanticide. He's asking him to commit suicide. But it's shocking not only because of that. It's shocking because of what it, how it seems to portray God here. I mean, here is God asking him to do all of these things. He's asking him to offer up a child sacrifice, something which God later goes on to actively condemn in the Old Testament. And he really seems to rub it in here. You see there in in verse 2, he could say, just take Isaac. But no, he doesn't, does he? Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Take that son and go and take him to a mountain and slaughter him. But most importantly... It seems like God is going back on his promise. He promised him Isaac. And now he's going back on his word. It is a shocking passage. And yet if you think God's command is shocking, just wait till you see Abraham's response. Abraham's response is so shocking because without a word, he simply obeys. It's just a heartbreakingly well-told story. I wish we had the time to go through it in in the detail that we could, but it's heartbreakingly well told. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. 
And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to the place God had told him about. Early in the morning. Isn't that a familiar phrase? Wasn't the last time Abraham got up early in the morning was to send off another son, Ishmael, as we saw there in the last chapter? And he's told to take his Isaac, his son. How many times that morning when Abraham was getting up in the crack of dawn, seeing Isaac move around gathering clothes for the journey, did Abraham repeat those words, my son, in his head? Then look at verses 4 to 5. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back again. They finally come to the place and he tells the servants to wait. But interestingly, they're off to worship. We're off to worship. We're off to worship my God by sacrificing my son to him. How must those words have stuck in his mouth? And look at the, is it wishful thinking? Is it forgetfulness? As he says to the servants here, we'll come back. Remembering all the times he's been and worshipped God and sacrificed lambs to God before with his son saying, yeah, we'll be back soon. Forgetting that on this trip, there'll only be one person returning. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the word for the burnt offering and placed it in his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So they start to walk towards the site for the sacrifice. Abraham carries the knife and the flame, the knife to consume his son, the flame to consume the wood, to consume the wood. Isaac carries the wood that will burn his body. The consumer and the consumed walking together side by side. Isaac, in his first and only activity in the entire story, gets curious and asks a question, saying, Dad, there's something missing here. Isn't there normally a lamb? Don't we normally have a lamb here? And Abraham's response is chilling. No, 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 I haven't forgotten anything. I haven't done the thing your old dad normally does. Now, God will provide a lamb. But he's not telling him exactly what it is. And finally, they arrive at the place in verse 9. And it's almost as if for the writer of this passage, time begins to slow down. Like witnessing a car wreck. As you see the car go towards the other car and gradually things slow down until the impact almost seems to take an hour. They've travelled three days in three verses, an afternoon in three verses. But gradually it slows down and down and down as we focus. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then in verse 10, in a story which has come with the repeated refrain, my son, my son, my son. It seems fitting that this last line should end with those words. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. It's just horrendous. We watch the scene with horror. How could Abraham put such trust in a God when he's commanded him to do such a terrible thing? How can we entrust our lives to a God like this? 
A God who promises us, like Abraham, a life and a future, only to snatch it away with the other hand. You see, God, I'm sure you've probably been through this. No, I'm sure you've been through this. You see, God's never asked you to do this before. But he asks us to make so many other sacrifices, doesn't he? And we sometimes feel that pain. They seem petty in comparison, and yet for us they are very real. That beautiful, attractive person with whom I'm so well connected, I'd so like to get to know better in a romantic relationship, but they are... They don't believe in Jesus. Or when we do have that boyfriend or girlfriend. God's given us this fabulous gift. We can't consummate the relationship until we're married. That time when we're at the office party and it would just be great just to join in with the other guys, have that extra drink, laugh at that extra joke, and yet there's something that holds me back. I'm offered that awesome job which I know will really further my career and yet... I know it'll take me away from my family. And I know that God wants me to change nappies. That time when I have that perfect call in the office gossip session, which would just be so funny, I know it would go down so well. And yet I sacrifice it to hold my tongue. When someone says something embarrassing about Jesus in public and I have to respond with an equally embarrassing defence when I cut my holiday short from the two-month trip to Europe, which I've been looking forward to so much, to the three-week trip around Queensland so I can help out at the Easter service. When I want to give to charity and yet I can see half a dozen improvements around the house that I could put it towards. You get the point. We're asked to make sacrifices. And even if you're the most committed Christian in this room or outside of it, you know that sometimes you do ask yourself, I ask myself, Is this really worth it? Can I really leave this God in charge of my life? Life just seems so short. Aren't I supposed to grip it? Can I really trust that this is all worthwhile, these sacrifices, giving these things up? Or are we sometimes like the, the nervous father teaching the learning driving son whose errors and stumbles finally get the better of him and says, right, no, I'm going to take the wheel. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to drive the car. And how often do we feel like that with God? God, you're a learner driver when it comes to my life. You stop all the fun things. I can't have any of the things that I want. I always seem to be making sacrifices. How can I trust you? Give me the wheel. Can God really be trusted with my life? That brings me to my second point. And the next two are much shorter. Because if Isaac was a dead man walking, he's now back from the dead. You can see it there in verse 11. For the second time in this narrative, God actually calls out Abraham's name. You can see it there in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Notice how he actually calls out twice. He really wants to get his attention now. He's got the knife raised and he continues there in verse 12. After Abraham's responded, don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. He doesn't have to sacrifice the boy. Disaster has been averted at the last minute. Now, to be quite honest, I really wonder whether Abraham heard anything after don't lay a hand on the boy. I imagine he stepped back about 40 metres, put the knife down and grabbed the sort of the second century BC equivalent of a very stiff drink. He would have been, his relief would have been absolutely overwhelming. But we know 
what was going on here. You see, because we know something that Abraham didn't. You can see it there in the very first lines of the chapter. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This was a test. But Abraham didn't know that. But now God has seen Abraham pass the test. He knows that he really does fear him because he's proved willing to give up the last thing that he would ever voluntarily give up to serve God. And so he provides him with an alternative solution. There's that bit there in verses 13 to 14 about giving up the ram, which he finds in the bush. And he's so grateful. He names the place God has provided. You see, it's now that we really see God's true colours and rather being the sadistic cosmic monster, we find that he's actually a loving father. You see, he never intended Abraham to kill Isaac. And although it it seems a severe test, it was necessary to show that Abraham's faith was real. James comments on it brilliantly, I think, in chapter 2, when he says this, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. You see, Abraham's faith was tested and proved right by what he did. He was willing to go to the end. And God knew that Abraham was capable of passing the test. You see, in a beautiful twist, just as we know something from the story that Abraham didn't know at the time, Abraham in the story knows something that we don't. Something that we don't until we read far into the future in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would receive the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, Abraham's calm here is not blind faith. He just totally trusts God at his word. When God says, I will have your offspring come through Isaac, Abraham believes it, even to the point that he thinks that killing that boy will not stop it. He just reasons, well, God's promised it. So he'll raise Isaac from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did. You see, God does test us sometimes to show the genuineness of our faith. He does. I've already listed lots of examples. But in that testing, in that time when you wonder, is this really worth it? Can God really be trusted? We've got to hang on to the fact that it is for our good. And we've got to remember what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10. That no matter how hard the testing, God will never give us anything we cannot handle. But will always provide us with a way out. That leads me to my final point. Dead man walking back from the dead. By the third point, really, really back from the dead. You see, because Abraham's faith here is rewarded rewarded with the repeat of the promise. You can see it there in verses 15 to 18. We don't have time to repeat it. But it's really just the repeat of what he said all along. You've come through with Isaac and yes, you will be blessed through him. Your offspring will come through him. But here's the problem. Because until Jesus comes, it all seems like something from a charade. 
Because as the writer to the Hebrews says, Isaac wasn't really raised from the dead. He was figuratively raised. And we only need to read on a few chapters here in Genesis to realize that he died. And all of Abraham's descendants died. And so our anxiety about death is solved here in some way in Genesis. But it's not really solved. The emptiness to Abraham's existence is not really shown to be true or not true. Until we come to the New Testament. When we see those people who were descended from Isaac. I'm going to ask you very quickly to flick over to Matthew chapter 1. It's dead easy to find. I'm not going to ask you to read it. In some ways, it's dead boring. We always kind of, we look at this chapter and we think, oh, right, what a great way to open a, a, a book of the Bible, a list, a whole bunch of kind of, you know, a family tree. All I want you to look at is three things. The first person mentioned, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Secondly, the huge list of descendants that goes on from there. And thirdly, in verse 16, the very last descendant who comes, Jesus, who is called the Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who really brings life. You see, Isaac's resurrection, it's just a picture. It's almost like a dress rehearsal for what will happen with Jesus. Isaac, like Jesus, had a father who loved him. Jesus, like Isaac, went willingly and quietly to sacrifice. And yet he was different. Isaac is just totally passive in the story. You might wonder why in a sermon about Isaac we barely hear about Isaac. Well, it's because in the whole book of Genesis, he's just, he doesn't do anything. He's just led. And yet Jesus' death could not have been anything like that. It could not be further from the truth. Because as Isaac is led and bound by his father, Jesus goes willingly to his death. Where Isaac could be replaced by a sheep. No, Jesus' death had to actually occur. And where Isaac didn't really rise from the dead, three days later, the same time it took Abraham and Isaac to walk, he really did rise from the dead. You see, Jesus does for us in our anxiety what, a, what Isaac can only prefigure. And the bottom line is this. God can be trusted with your life. He can be trusted with your life. It transforms our view of the future. See, we will physically rise from the dead. Just as Isaac pre-shadowed, but we have in, in, in real form, in flesh, in blood, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And in that case, real life for us will carry on. God can be trusted with our future. We don't have to live on just in memories, like Christopher Wren and St. Paul's Cathedral. No, rather, why don't I point you to another epitaph from a man around the same time, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote this. This is what he wanted on his tombstone when he was writing as a young man. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the copy of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? of what life will be like. 
Don't we long for the day when we will be rebound, re-stitched, re-edited and re-raised by our author. But it also changes our view of the present. Because in some ways, whether we're non-Christians or even if we are Christians, we found ourselves still trapped in this cycle of hedging our bets. We technically know, yes, of course, Jesus was raised from the dead. But what about this life now? Isn't a lot of our busyness not actually squeezing the marrow out of life, but caused by a deep and crushing anxiety? Aren't we desperate to get that promotion, to go on that trip, make sure I make it to Europe, make sure I read that book, Make sure I have this circle of friends. Make sure I crack into that circle of friends. Make sure this person respects me. Isn't so much of that not thankfulness at God's good gifts to us, but desperately grabbing for what we can get? Because who knows what will happen in the future? No, we can be set free from that. We can be set free from that anxiety. God's given us great gifts here. And those things that we have here now, we can enjoy. They are wonderful. We know that God loves good gifts here. We know that God loves the physical world. We know God loves the physical world because he raised part of it. He took Jesus and raised him from the dead. God loves this world and the things here to be enjoyed. Europe's a great place. I love cars. But they're not where final, deep, soul-deep satisfaction is found. The answer for our anxiety is not in clinging to them. But in the hope of the resurrection, in the hope of life, knowing that we can enjoy them as things that we were never meant to keep now, but that we can have forever. As C.S. Lewis once famously said, if you aim at earth, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. It's only when we have realized that friends, that we'll really understand Jesus saying, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the security you give us in Jesus. That you prefigured in Isaac that though all the promises seem to be going against it, that He was saved at the last minute and figuratively raised from the dead. And we thank you for what that points us towards, to the Lord Jesus and his actual conquest of death so that we can be right with God. And that that eases our anxiety no end, that we can know that we have a future and that because we have a future, we have a present, a present in which we can love and enjoy and serve you willingly losing our life to you, handing over the reins, handing over the wheel, because we know that you alone can be trusted with our lives now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.